Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak without, with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them into ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. G'day Southside. It's, it's really great uh, to be meeting with you again this morning. My name's Sam. Um, it's my privilege today to be opening up God's Word and, and preaching this, this uh, very rich passage from Psalm 73. So why don't we, why don't we join together? Let's pray uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll work through this passage together. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for, for the way that you speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, this, this psalm speaks of such, of such, such depth that Asaph is, is going through, that he, he comes before you and, and laments and, and, and confesses his sins. And Lord, we, we pray that this morning you would speak to us, that you would remind us of, of who we are before you. And Lord, that you would, you would teach us uh, where it is we should go uh, when we feel weak. Uh, we pray that, that you would uh, open our hearts this morning as we hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Distance. That word distance, it, it's become a very familiar word to us, hasn't it? Uh, social distance has become the buzzword for COVID-19. And, and while this distance, it, it's in place for good reasons, it still really hurts. Distance from the people we love sucks. That last week uh, for Mother's Day, my dad had to, had to wish my grandmother Happy Mother's Day from, from his car window while she stood on the balcony of her nursing home. 
that was as close as they were allowed to get. Experiencing distance from the people we love, it sucks. But the psalm that we're looking at today and this week, Psalm 73, it has a lot to say about distance. But the distance we read of here isn't just a 1.5 metre social distance between people. No, it, it, this is a relational distance that the psalmist is experiencing between him and God. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever felt like God, he's not as close as he used to be? You know that feeling when you're, when you're at the beach and you're having fun in the surf and, and after a while you look up and, and suddenly you realize you've actually drifted a really long way away from the shore. Have you ever felt like you've drifted away from God? Well, the writer of this psalm, Asaph, he, he's writing about his experience of feeling distant from God and it's, it's not good. It's not good. See, we're told elsewhere in the Bible that, that Asaph, he's, he's a seer or a, or a prophet. He prophesies under the supervision of King David, which means he's supposed to be the guy who speaks to God's people on God's behalf. He's supposed to connect God and his word to God's people. But when we read the opening verses of this psalm, things don't seem right. Because this guy who's meant to connect God to his people is, is himself feeling disconnected from God. He's feeling a relational distance from God. And he knows it's not a good place to be. Have a read with me from verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So what Asaph's saying in these opening verses is God and, and his people Israel, well, they're all the way over there. But me? Well, well, I'm all the way over here. Distant. Disconnected. He's not feeling very connected anymore. And, but, but how does Asaph come to this point? How did someone so close to God end up feeling so far away from him? If God is surely good to those who appear in heart, if he's good to me, why does he feel so distant right now? Have you ever asked that question? If you've ever been there in that experience, you'll know just as Asaph does. Distance is a place where you feel quite weak and helpless. A place where your feet feel as though they're slipping back again and again and again. But how? How do we get to that point of feeling distant and disconnected from God? When we look at this psalm of Asaph, we're, we're given a window into what causes this distance. Because what Asaph experiences is a moment of weakness. And in this weakness, he allows his own heart to tell him what is good in life and what's worth living for. And we see that there from verse 3. At the end of verse 2, he says, My feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a moment of weakness that leads Asaph to experience distance from God. He's envious of what the rest of the world's got. He's let his own heart determine what's good in life. He sees what the wicked and arrogant have in life, and he envies their way of living. 
And it's so easy for us to do the same, isn't it? To want what others have, a nicer car, a bigger house, more money, more time to travel, a better job, even more sleep. And it's a weakness, isn't it? And we know it's a weakness because it's constantly targeted by advertising companies. And shop, shop fronts flaunt what they've got in such a way they make us envious of what's inside so that we go into their shops and buy it. It's a weakness. And as for Asaph the prophet, well, he, he looks at, at the shop front displays of the world that surround him. And we see from verses 4 to 12 that he doesn't just want some of what they've got. He wants it all. He envies everything these people are, everything they have, everything they say. He envies their whole way of life. Take a look, verses 4 and 5. We, we see that he envies their health, their strength, the fact that they're free from burdens and don't seem to get sick. He envies everything these arrogant, wicked people are. Verses 6 and 7, he also envies everything they have, their pride and violence that they dress themselves in on the outside and their immoral hearts and evil minds on the inside. He also envies everything they say, which is there from verses 8 to 11. Malice, scoffing and threats. They claim to own the universe with their words. The way that they speak attracts others. They even speak as though they themselves are gods. Asaph envies everything they say. And finally, in verse 12, we see he envies their whole way of life. What a life they live, carefree and rich. See, when Asaph looks at these people, he thinks they have it so good. And he's not alone in his desire. Asaph and his experience of weakness, it's far from unique. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the story of, of Adam and Eve. As they're living in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, Satan, disguised as a serpent, slips into their kingdom. And he convinces Eve that there's, there's a better life to live outside God's goodness. His deceptive words cause Eve to be envious. She wants a taste of that life, to live life her own way, away from God's laws. So in a moment of weakness... Both Adam and Eve break the one law God gave them. They hope that by eating the forbidden fruit, they'll get a taste of the good life Satan's promised them. But instead, what, what happens? Well, Satan's revealed to be the liar. They don't win a good life by breaking God's rules. Instead, they lose the truly good life of living in God's presence. God casts them out of the garden for their disobedience. Their moment of weakness causes them to experience distance from God. And every person since Adam and Eve, including you and me, we struggle with the same weakness. We all become convinced of Satan's lies, that there's, there's a better life to live outside God's goodness and rule. All of us, even those of us who are Christian from time to time, want to experience freedom because we're convinced that freedom is living however we like, ignoring God's goodness and listening to the desires of our hearts. We look at the, at the world like Asaph does. We, we know God's good to his people, but when we look at what everyone else has got, we start to wonder if God's actually good to us 
because it seems as though he's giving them the better life. And this is what Asaph's feeling. God might be good to those pure in heart, but he seems to give a better life to those who are wicked and arrogant. Their life's what looks good, carefree and without rules. But my life, well, living for God just makes me feel trapped and troubled. Have a listen to the words he writes from verses 13 to 16. Verse 13, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Surely following God's rules won't actually get me anywhere in life. Verse 14, All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. All day, every day, I feel oppressed. I know God says elsewhere that His mercies are new every morning, but, but someone else must be benefiting from those mercies because that's not my experience. 15, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. As God's prophet, if, if I'd spoken like the wicked and arrogant, I'd have led God's people astray. I feel like I always have to say the right thing, never free to speak how I want. In verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Well, not only does Asaph have a moment of weakness, envying the wicked and the wickedness of the world, but in his weakness, wanting what they have, he looks at his own life and feels as though he's trapped. And it's troubling. It's depressing. The lies of Satan are convincing him that living for God isn't good. And the more he listens to those lies, the more distant he feels from God. And this isn't a good place for Asaph to be in. So the first half of this psalm, it, Asaph paints himself in a pretty dark place. He's in darkness. He's supposed to be the guy who connects God with his people, yet he's become weak distant and disconnected because he wants to chase the things of the world instead of living under God's good rule. It sounds a little bit like the experience that teenagers often go through, doesn't it? Like it's, it's everyone else your age who's having fun. They're the ones who get to go out and party whenever they want and, and they're the ones who get away with, with stuff. But you just feel trapped at home living under your parents' rules. Asaph feels like the trapped teenager because all he wants is to go and experience what everyone, everyone else has got away from God's rules. And he's experiencing distance from God because his desires have driven him there. But how long will it be before God casts him away forever? How long before God will kick him out of his kingdom just as he did with Adam and Eve. Will Asaph be cast away forever? Because surely a man who, who behaves like a child and, and who, who can't follow God's rules doesn't deserve to live in God's kingdom. Well, the psalm, the psalm takes an unexpected turn because something radical happens in verse 17. Asaph steps into God's sanctuary read with me from the end of verse 16 it, it troubled me deeply till i entered the sanctuary of god he comes to god's temple and what do you think he sees when he steps into that temple when he enters the temple 
Does he see a beautiful, peaceful, quiet place where he can gather his thoughts? Absolutely not. No, what Asaph would have been seeing in the temple is a whole lot of blood. Knives dripping with blood, altars splattered with blood, priests with blood on their hands as they're sacrificing innocent animals on behalf of God's people. And can you imagine the sounds, the noise of those animals, the chanting, the praying, the lamenting of the priests? The temple's not a place of peace and quiet, which is often what we think of when we hear the word sanctuary. Instead, it's a place of slaughter and sacrifice, a place where Asaph sees how serious God is when it comes to our sins and our wickedness. And it's here in the powerful presence of God that that Asaph, the, the rebellious teenager, he drops his pride and arrogance. He admits defeat and allows the envy of his heart to be squashed by the overwhelming picture of God's judgment. Because now in the presence of God, the true meaning of life is radically revealed to him. Let's keep reading from verse 17. I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He's talking about the destiny of the wicked. Surely you, God, place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? Asaph now sees that that anyone who lives in wickedness and arrogance will be completely obliterated by God. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. In the grand scheme of things, it'll be as if the wicked never even existed. Forgotten and despised as fantasies. Imagine the sights he sees the sounds he hears, the smells he smells as he enters God's sanctuary. Asaph's senses are overwhelmed by God's serious stance towards sin because it's here that he gets a clearer picture of the judgment, the judgment that awaits those who are wicked and arrogant and ignorant of God. What a revelation Asaph has when he steps into God's presence. What a change of heart. He sees that the true meaning of life isn't to live for your own glory, striving to make a name for yourself as if God doesn't exist. He wants no part in their destiny. So what, what's his response to what he sees and hears and smells? How does Asaph respond? Well, in the following verses, he makes... He makes a confession before God. Verse 21. My heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, God. Asaph recognizes that his desires and actions have been, they've been less than human, like a beast. So he comes to God in, in repentance. He confesses his ignorance before God the judge knowing God has every right to cast him away forever. And yet that's, that's not the response we see from God because in the very next verse, Asaph writes with confidence, yet I'm always with you. I'm always with you. See, in a, in a moment, he goes from being distant, almost cut off from God, to being near to God, with God. 
But what gives this man who so openly envied life outside God's kingdom, just as Adam and Eve did, the confidence to say to God, I'm always with you. What gives him that confidence? Well, because Asaph not only sees God as judge through the blood and gore in the temple, but he also sees how holy and good God is. How graciously God accepts the sacrifice as an offering of peace, despite how wicked and evil people have been toward him. God's got every right to take away Asaph's life, to cast him away and despise him. Yet through such a small offering of peace, God holds forgiveness out to him. And in this, Asaph sees that his destiny was not determined by his own righteous actions. No, it's, it's wholly determined by who God is and what God's done. And we see that through Asaph's words as he concludes this psalm in verses 23 to 28. Verse 23, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who, unfaithful, all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near you, God. I've made you the sovereign Lord, my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So what's, what's beautiful about the way this, this psalm closes is, is how unapologetic it is about giving all glory to God. The wickedness at the beginning is paralleled with, with God's glory at the end. See, where the, where the wicked scoff and speak with malice, God, God guides his people with his counsel. Where the arrogant lay claim to heaven, God takes his people into heaven, into glory. Where the arrogant walk around in bodies that look healthy and strong, God becomes the strength of the heart of the weak. Asaph's taken from, from weakness to strength. From a place that looks gory to being with God in glory. Asaph's psalm began with, with him almost losing his footing. His foundation was weak because he put his faith in his own weakness. But when he comes to God, his, his worldview is radically transformed. And it's there that he puts his faith in God, trusting in God's forgiveness. And his faith is now no longer in the weakness of his own heart, but in a foundation that cannot be shaken. It's in the strength of God. And so Asaph learns that when he feels weak, when his feet begin to slip again, he needs only to reach out and take God's hand that right hand that, that's already got a stronghold of him. Because it's only by leaning on God's strength that Asaph overcomes the weakness of his heart. And it's good for us too to, to learn from Asaph's mistakes and follow his lead. But actually, th there's something far greater that we can seek when we feel weak and distant from God. And it's something that this psalm, well, it only points to because it's actually not fully realized until we come to Jesus. 
So we know from the New Testament that, that Jesus prayed and experienced the Psalms. And whenever we read the Psalms, we should always look to how they, they might have taken shape in Jesus' life. But when we consider the first half of this Psalm, it, it's hard to imagine a moment in Jesus' life where he would have lived in envy of the wicked. In fact, he tells several parables about people who store up riches and how it only results in their judgment and death. He says stuff like how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So where do we see Psalm 73 in Jesus' life? Well, first of all, we, we know from the Gospels that, that after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. We're told that Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And then Satan says to Jesus, I'll give you all of this if you'll bow down and worship me. Satan offers Jesus the same tantalizing lie that he gave to Eve. And it's the same lie that that entered Asaph's heart. There's so much more you can have if you stop living for God. Look at how good life is outside God's kingdom. Look at all the stuff you can have if you just stop living for God. And although we're not told... I can bet that the words of Psalm 73 are with Jesus at that moment. Because like Asaph, Satan was was tempting Jesus to envy the life of the wicked. But unlike Asaph, Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation. He doesn't become envious of this other life. Instead, he, he commands Satan to leave, reminding him that he'll only worship and serve God. And Satan flees. Jesus does what Adam and Eve and Asaph and all all of us should have done. He stands firm in the presence of God and trusts in the strength of God. His his faith is strong because it's in God and not in anything else. And it's really important that we see Jesus in this moment overcome Satan's lie. Because if Jesus is able to succeed where the rest of humanity, the rest of us, fail then the life that that Jesus offers through his death and resurrection is a truer and better experience of humanity. A humanity that's capable of living for God's glory and with God in glory. A humanity that sees good not in the wicked things of the world, but good in what is actually good. And that's the humanity Jesus wins for us. As he not only overcomes Satan's lies in the wilderness, but as he completely robs Satan of his power through the cross. Because the second way that we see this psalm lived out in Jesus is although he doesn't live in wickedness or arrogance himself, he he goes to the cross to bear the punishment for those who do. I've made a list of, of the sins that Asaph writes about in Psalm 73. And r- remember, this is just one, one passage in the Bible. So really, this list only just scratches the surface of all the ways that our hearts have rejected God. Here's the list. Envy, wickedness, arrogance, pride, violence, vanity, betrayal, affliction, iniquity, evil imaginations, scoffing, malice, threats, oppression, Evil persuasion, coercion, carelessness, senselessness, bitterness. 
See, what's eye-opening about this list is we're all guilty of some of these. Yet, yet Jesus, the, the perfect man, he lives in such perfect obedience of God that, that his heart never fails. His whole life, he remains sinless. But on the cross, Jesus, he takes all of our wickedness on himself and as a sacrifice dies in our place. It's his innocent blood that, that's drawn out by those nails. It's the sound of his cries, his prayers, his laments that are heard through the valley as he's swept away in death by terrors and despised as a fantasy by his own father. Jesus dies not for his own wickedness, but for our wickedness. As, as the song tells us, the cross is where Jesus stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. He's treated as though he's the brute beast of Psalm 73, enduring it all for you. So that your wickedness, past, present and future, can be considered dealt with before God. It's no longer at the temple where we see God's final judgment for the wicked. It's, it's now in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we not only see the man who's paid our debts before the judge, but we see the God-man who rose back to life to win us a new hum humanity. The Jesus who, who's now seated with God in glory and the Jesus who will return to judge and cast away forever anyone who continues to live in wickedness and rejection of him. And that's why in, in the New Testament, we're called to have faith in Christ, faith in Jesus, to not trust in our weakness, but to come to him and stand firm in his strength, the strength that won forgiveness, the strength that defeated Satan's power and the strength that conquered the grave. Jesus said, if, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Now, we've been singing these words in our house this last week. They're from a song by Colin Buchanan and City of Light. They're, they're simple words, but they remind us so clearly where we can find strength by placing our faith firmly in Christ. For he's the Lord who's good and faithful. He's the one who will keep us day and night. And he's the one we can always run to. Jesus, strong and kind. Is Jesus the one that you run to when you're starting to feel distant from God? When, when your foundations begin to feel slippery, are you running to stand in Jesus? Are you reaching out to grab his hand, which is already holding you? Because the thing about weakness, even for the Christian, is it's not a matter of if it'll come, but when. Unlike Jesus, we don't reach our true humanity until we enter into God, God's glory. So weakness is still very much a part of our lives. Distance will continue to push its way in. 
between you and God. But when it does, don't let yourself push away from God. Don't drift away in the surf. Instead, push in. Shove your nose in God's face and look at what He's done for you at the cross. Let Him remind you of who you are in Jesus. Don't run from Him, but run to Him. Draw near to Him. Be bold to call on His strength. Be quick to trust in His forgiveness and be willing to take refuge in Jesus. As Paul reminds us, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He's your refuge. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you'll also appear with him in glory. When you feel as though you're slipping, push into Jesus. He's your refuge. He's your life. He's all that is good and desirable. All the things of this earth pale in comparison to who he is and the life that he's won for you in glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, you, you are good to those who are pure in heart. But the only one among us who ever kept his heart pure was your son. And you raised him in glory. You know our hearts, Lord. They're not pure. They're weak. You see our wickedness, our arrogance, our envy. So we ask, Father, that you would forgive us and strengthen us to run to him who is pure in heart. Strengthen us to run to Jesus in our weakness and find refuge in him. Who do we have in heaven but you, Lord? And what can this earth offer us that compares to your riches? So, Lord, help us to find wisdom in your presence. Help us to hope not in the riches of this earth, but in the love that holds us to the end. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.